And as we're, we're going through this, I told you we're going to have some positive examples and we're going to see some negative examples. And this morning, we're going to see one of those negative examples of what we don't want to do. This is a situation that we don't want to have happen in our lives uh, as it applies to the situation that we saw presented in the movies. And for me, one of the more poignant scenes in the movie came as one of the characters' faith, uh, his morals, and his integrity was put to the test. And in that scene, someone says to him, integrity is rare. Integrity is rare. And it really drove home the point of how important it is that we practice our faith as believers and followers of Jesus Christ with the highest level of integrity at all times and with all people. Now that should go without saying, but unfortunately as pastor in today's culture, I feel that it's my duty to remind believers that people should see integrity in our lives because of our relationship and our walk with Jesus Christ. And part of the reason I feel like I have to remind us of this this morning is because the world is rife with examples of Christians who aren't living lives of godly integrity in the world around them. It's true of of all Christians, but it's also true of church leaders. True story. A pastor's wife was arrested and charged with murder. She and a friend of hers went and picked up her sister's abusive boyfriend, took him out to have a talk with him and took his life. Now, that's not the drastic part of it. The, the incredible part of that, when I heard this account, was the fact that he remained as pastor in his church for four years awaiting trial for his wife with these murder charges. She was arrested and charged with this four years for the trial. Now, she was acquitted in the trial, not because she was innocent, but because of improper police procedure. There was a mistrial because of a technicality, and she was set free. Then the church said, you know what? This probably isn't a good situation, so we're going to ask you uh, to no longer be our pastor. But he pastored for four years after his wife had been arrested and charged with murder. Now, I'll tell you, my wife, Shelly, is keenly aware of her role and, and the, the responsibility and the weight that's on her as a pastor's wife. But now just look at her and say, ah, oh, honey, don't worry about it. You haven't killed anybody. You know, so you, you got a lot of leeway, you know, in that. I, it, it, it just, it blew my mind to hear this story. And stories like that abound on a national, state, and local level. And we hear about it more oftentimes with church leaders and, and, and large ministry leaders. But what about the day in and day out example that's being set by Christians? by born-again believers from churches all across our nation. You know, statistics tell us that the divorce rate inside the church is pretty much equal to the divorce rate outside the church. Even though God says in Scripture, I hate divorce. Where's our integrity and our stance on God's Word in that situation? If statistics hold true, There are men and women in this worship center now and in the next hour who are engaging in adulterous relationships. If not physical at this point, they've started down the emotional, uh, psychological affair toward adultery in their marriages and against a spouse. Is that adhering to the morals and the ethics that are taught in the Bible? And where does the Bible give us an out or, or lesson uh, the, the addictions to pornography or drugs or alcohol or, or gambling addictions that are rampant in the lives of believers in churches in our world today. 
And we may call anger, rage, bitterness, malice, and slander. We may call those things our constitutional right of free speech. We can say and do what we want to do. We're given that right here in America. But you know what the Bible calls it? The Bible calls it sin. And it says that believers and Christians are to not do those things and be given to those things. And for me, the question really isn't so much where's the integrity The real question that I've wrestled with is where's the outrage? Where's the outcry? Where's the wailing of God's people before God? That integrity has all but gone by the wayside and no one has missed it. We don't have a problem. We don't have an issue with the fact that there's no integrity in our lives as believers. We've grown comfortable with our sin, church. We've grown comfortable with it. We've rationalized it away. We've explained it. We've justified our actions. And it breaks the heart of God. And it should break our hearts as well. And until it breaks our hearts and we repent of it and we ask for forgiveness and are forgiven of it, we are never going to live out the courageous life that God calls us to. Because we carry around that guilt and that shame and that weight. And we never want to live and, and we'll give ourselves fully to the things of God because we're being held back by this sin. The Bible says that entangles us and enslaves us. So we need to be forgiven of it so that we can live that courageous life. So we can live our lives for God's glory, for God's honor, and for the sake of the gospel. And last week, I told you to file away two sentences from Exodus chapter 17. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about the Israelites battling the people uh, from the country of, of Amalek. The Amaleks were descendants of Esau, who was Jacob's brother. If you go back and look at your Old Testament history, uh, Jacob and Esau didn't get along too well, shall we say. I mean, there was constant war and battling and bickering between them and their descendants that still, when you trace this through, is still taking place today. There was incredible antagonism, and we see it between the Amalekites and the Israelites in Exodus chapter 17. I told you last week to file these two sentences away. God told Moses in Exodus 17, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Remember that sentence from last week? And then later in that same uh, description there, God said, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, if you fast forward a little bit to Numbers chapter 13, the Israelites are on the edge of the promised land, getting ready to go in and take over the promised land that God had had promised to Abraham and his descendants hundreds of years before. It's time for them to go in. And so Moses sends out spies to go and look around the land and say, hey, bring us a report. Tell us what the land is like. Tell us what the people are like. So they come back and they say, the land is awesome. It's flowing with milk and honey, and they brought back a cluster of grapes that they had to put on a pole and carry between two men. They said, it's wonderful, it's a beautiful, it's a good land, and and it would be awesome, except for one thing. And in Numbers chapter 13, verse 28, they say, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. That's the problem. The land is good, the people aren't. They're big, they're strong, they're ugly. 
And we don't want to go there. They're ugly because it says, and besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anaks were abnormally large people. They were referred to as giants, all right? So they were big, they were strong, they were ugly. They said, the land is good, the people aren't. We've got a problem here. But look at this last sentence in the description of the land. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. Remember God saying war with them from generation to generation? In the book of Judges... As the people are settled more in the land and, and there's some level of peace, but the people sin against God and God punishes them and then they, they ask for forgiveness and God forgives them and they have peace again and they sin against God. And so this cycle we see over and over again in the book of Judges. But in chapters 3, chapter 6, and chapter 7 in the book of Judges, the Amalekites are listed as being oppressors of Israel. They would come in, they would conquer them, they would rule over them, and then God would send a judge to deliver them from the slavery and the oppression of the Amalekites. And so we see this generation from generation battle that God had promised playing itself out over and over again, just like God said it would. He predicted it. He said it was going to happen. And twice, the Bible says, one of the most ominous statements in the entire Bible in the book of Judges, it says this, in those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Two times we read that statement in the book of of Judges. It's a somber statement. And here's the thing. The Amalekites were used by God to punish the Israelites for their sin and disobedience to him. When they did what was right in their own eyes and it was sinful, God sent the Amalekites to come in and to oppress them, to punish them for their sin and their disobedience. But now fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's a couple of centuries later. The Israelites conquered, settled in the promised land, had gone through the the season of, of the judges. And during the book of Judges, the people get this idea in their minds to see what their problem is. You know, we, we, we sin, we wanted these other nations come in, they rule over us, and we get set free by a judge, and then this other nation comes in and take over. They said, we don't like being in slavery and out of slavery and being back in slavery and out of slavery. They said, there's a problem here, and we know what the problem is. That they, they self-diagnosed themselves. They said, our problem is that we don't have a king in Israel. All these other nations have a king and their king leads them in and they take over. They rule over us and make us their slaves. If we had a king, we could be strong. We could stand up to them and we would no longer be slaves and be oppressed by them. Well, their real problem was sin, but they thought it was not having a king. And so they go to Samuel, who's the Lord's prophet, who who intercedes and, and goes and gives them messages from the Lord. They say, Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel says, no, you don't. They say, yes, we do. He said, no, you don't. They said, yes, we do. All of our friends have kings. So we want a king. And Samuel says, no, you don't. Here's what a king's going to do. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your land. You're going to pay taxes. You don't want a king. And they say, yes, we want a king. And Samuel argues back and forth with him. Finally, the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, Samuel, you and I know it's not the best thing, but they will not yield their stubborn, unrepentant hearts. So give them what they want. Church, that's a scary place to be when we won't listen and receive God's word, God's message, God's instruction, and God says, okay, you want it that way? Knock yourself out. I'm going to let you see that it's all that I told you and more. So Samuel goes and he anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. Saul was a man of great stature, great respect, and the people said, we haven't 
awesome king. He is a man among men. Awesome, awesome king. It's going to be great for us. But Saul didn't walk faithfully with the Lord. In, in uh, chapter 13, there are three chapters here, 13, 14, and 15, where Saul makes huge mistakes, not in leading the people, but in his walk and his leadership under God's direction. In chapter 13, he offers a sacrifice he wasn't supposed to offer. He stepped into a role or position that he wasn't supposed to. And when he was confronted about doing what he wasn't supposed to do, he gave a flimsy excuse as to why he did it. Now, God wasn't pleased with his actions, nor was God pleased with his faulty reasoning or him justifying his sin in chapter 13. In chapter 14, he makes a rash vow. He wanted to motivate his men and build morale so that they would, you know, amp up and they would do what they needed to do in this battle. So he makes this vow about what all people are supposed to do. Well, his son, Jonathan, didn't know that his dad had given this command and made this vow. And Jonathan broke the vow. And when Saul found out that his son Jonathan broke the vow and there were to be consequences for breaking that vow, do you know what happened? Nothing. He didn't follow through with his vow. He didn't keep his word. His integrity took a huge hit, not just in the eyes of his men that day because he didn't follow through, but particularly in his relationship with God. But the straw that broke the camel's back came in chapter 15. This is what caused Saul to forfeit his throne as the first king of Israel. He disobeys a very clear command from God. Verse one sets up the instruction. It says, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. You remember this promise we talked about? I told you there was this thread that runs through Old Testament. Here we see it, God bringing back to that word what they did in attacking the Israelites, which parenthetically was attacking at the back of the people. When they saw them coming out of Egypt, they were weak, they were tired, they were defenseless. These cowards didn't go to the front and fight the men who were leading, who were paving away, who had some energy and maybe could fight back. They went to the back of the line to attack Men, the, the, the children, the women who were back there, those who were weak and who were tired, who were straggling in the back, they went and attacked at the rear. It set up the battle that took place that we saw last week in Exodus chapter 17. God noted their cowardly attack upon his children and set and determined that they would be punished for that sin. You need to remember that. God doesn't just send destruction or calamity on people just because, but God punishes sin. They were being punished for their sin against God. And so Samuel gives the instruction to Saul from God himself. Verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So their punishment for their sin against Israel, not just in that attack, but the other sins that they piled up as a, as a pagan nation who, who wasn't uh, afraid of God and didn't fear God and serve him. Their punishment was to be destruction and annihilation. It is a clear command, no room for misinterpret, misunderstanding what's taking place here. God said, kill everyone and everything and take no plunder from the people. 
That was a common practice in ancient warfare. When you destroyed a people, when you won in battle, you got their stuff. You got to bring their goods back, whether it's gold, jewelry, you know, whatever other material possessions, you got to keep that stuff if you beat them in battle, all right? But God said, no, I don't want there to be any joy, any celebration, any benefit from you punishing the Amalekites' sin because God takes no joy in punishing our sin and disobedience. There's no joy in it. God does it because God is just. And to be true to his character and his nature, God must punish sin. And he must punish disobedience. And he did that through Jesus Christ on our behalf. He poured out his wrath upon Christ so that he satisfied his justice against sin and disobedience. But there's no joy in punishing sin and disobedience. And God didn't want them to benefit from the plunder of destroying these peoples that he had set apart for destruction because of their sin against him. And verse 9 highlights the disobedience. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they made a decision. Now, this stuff looks pretty good. We're, we're going to keep this. This doesn't look good. It's sick, you know, uh, weak, maimed, whatever. We, we don't want that stuff. That, that stuff's not good. This stuff is. We're going to go ahead and keep this anyway. And Samuel arrives and confronts Saul about what's taken place, that he didn't follow through with the Lord's command. And Saul justifies and he rationalizes his actions. Look at verse 15. Here's what he says. They have brought them from the Amalekites. He's talking about the sheep and the animals and all these things that they have. They brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Notice that he says, the Lord, your God, not my God, our God, a joint, but the Lord, your God. This is an instruction that God gave us. I really kind of didn't agree with it, but we, we wanted to, to bring these things back and, and give them as a sacrifice to the Lord, your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. So basically he says the people did this in order to give it as a sacrifice to God. And in verse 20, he tries to clear his name but he does so by, by throwing the people, his soldiers and the others, under the bus in one of the most self-serving statements I, I think we see in the entire Bible. Look at what he says in verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Look at what I did. I did what was right. I was following through. Verse 21. But the people took of the spoil, sheep, and oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now, he admitted in verse 21 that they were devoted to destruction, yet they still have them. And Samuel responds with the truth that I drove home from point one in this little series, and that's this. We must obey God above all else, period. End of discussions, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We are to obey God above all else. Samuel says to him in verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Translation. 
Saul, would God rather have your obedience to him and no sacrifices, no offerings, or would he rather have you disobey his very clear command and bring him sacrifice and offerings from what you uh, gathered in this battle? 2011 vernacular, put it this way. Would God rather have your obedience to him and no participation, uh, no giving of, of tithes or offerings or support in any way for a church or its ministry? Or would God rather have you be faithful in attendance, beyond generous in your giving, yet live your life like an unsaved pagan in the world around you, totally disobeying him uh, and his word and his teachings and his truths that he's called you to? Which would God rather have? Your obedience or your disobedience? And you giving all the stuff but not obeying him? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, God would rather have your obedience than anything you can give to him because anything you can do uh, or give to God means nothing if you're not living a life of integrity and obeying his word and what he's called you to do. And that's what Samuel says, the next part of this verse, he says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. If you've got your own copy of God's word, you need to underline that and circle obey. To obey is better than sacrifice. Nothing you can give means anything if you're not obeying. And he says, and to listen than the fat of rams. Saul missed the point. And because he failed to obey God, the consequences of his actions were that someone else, a teenage boy named David, would become the next king. He lost the kingdom. He lost his position as king of Israel. And you know, it can be very tempting for us to be very judgmental, very condemning of Saul. But let me say this, there but by the grace of God go I. There, but by the grace of God, go I. Now that quote is, is questionably attributed to John Bradford, but its point is clear. Even though someone else's mistakes and sins may not be yours, you have your own, do you not? No, oh, how awful is that? You, you've got your own, and except for God's grace and his mercy and his work in your life, you could find yourself in a very similar the very same or an even worse situation except for the grace of God. So as we think about living a courageous life, just remind, we must live our lives at the highest level of integrity and obedience before God. We represent Jesus Christ in everything that we do and people should see the difference that he makes in your life. And I'll tell you this, if they don't see the difference that Jesus makes in your life, they see the lack of difference that he makes in your life. And it speaks volumes about Jesus Christ. It does. Your obedience or your disobedience, living in faithful obedience to Christ says, speaks volumes about the difference or lack of difference that Jesus can make in a life. So I want us to spend our last couple of minutes here looking at a couple of common pitfalls to avoid in order to maintain our integrity, looking at the negative example, looking at what Saul did and, and trying to avoid these same things. First of all, know your role. 
Know your role. Saul wasn't supposed to offer sacrifices to God. That was Samuel's role. He was the king. He was to lead the people into battle. He was to get instruction from God through Samuel as to what they were to do. And then Saul was to lead them in that. He was to set the example for all that they were to follow. He wasn't to offer sacrifices to God, but he took it upon himself to do a job that Samuel was supposed to do because he wanted to find God's favor before going into battle. He said, we want God to be with us. We want God to give us the victory. So I'm going to offer this sacrifice to God so that God will speak to me. But it wasn't his role. It wasn't his responsibility. Not being who you are in Jesus Christ is a huge temptation for many believers. And it's also the source of many, many compromises of our integrity. Because we want to fit in. We want to be accepted or, or we just don't want to stand out. We want to appear normal to those around us. So we often compromise our integrity in order to do that. When God has said, it doesn't matter what people think about you. It doesn't matter your reputation uh, and what they would say about you if your reputation and things about you aren't honoring and pleasing to me. We're to live our lives integrity so that we can live out God's will. Our life is supposed to look different from the world around us. And here's the thing. We so often get focused on us that we lose sight of what God has called us to. You see, God has a providential will that he wants to exercise in the world today. God has things that he wants to accomplish through people. He wants to see people saved. He wants to see people come to him through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's called us as his agents to live our lives so that his will can be accomplished. Grasp that. God wants his will to be accomplished through us. So our lives should be lived according to God's will. Let me give you one just real quick, short example on this. Maybe later today, you're going to think about where to go eat lunch. If you're thinking about you and your will, your desires, your flesh, your wants, your appetites, you will go eat wherever you have a desire to go eat today. Whatever tickles your fancy, Italian, Mexican, burgers. I I don't know. You'll go where you want to go eat today. But when you understand and grasp God's will to accomplish in people that people are drawn to him, you will recognize and understand that the place that you go eat today isn't based on what you're hungry for. It's going to be the place that you will be in order to build relationships, plant seeds of the gospel, water seeds of the gospel that have been planted, or maybe see a person come to Christ with the servers who may be there, with people who are around you. It is a place where you are to be on mission to accomplish God's will, not just get your belly full. Do you see that difference? God's will, God's purposes, we are to be a part of that. And if we're focused on us, we miss that task. Our role is to accomplish God's will, not satisfy our wants and our desires or live out our plan according to what we want or what we think should happen. That was Saul's mistake. Here's what I want to see happen. So I'm going to go ahead and do this. And God says, no, that's not your task. It's not your role. Our role is to live for him. And if we're going to live a courageous life as we've been called to do, it means taking a stand and standing up for what's right, doing the right thing, even if no one else is. And if the world doesn't like it, which they won't, then big deal. We're called to live before God, not according to the world. Now, to drive home a little bit here, as we we talk a little bit about uh, living out God's will according to ours and how our integrity suffers, I just mentioned eating out, going and having dinner. Well, what's, what's okay, we we have some chance maybe to plant some seeds and, and do something on God's will and mission. Do you know that Christian integrity takes a beating 
in eating and dining establishments all across America week in and week out. Our integrity takes a beating week in and week out. And guess which day of the week it suffers the most? On Sunday, our day of worship. You go, what are you talking about? It's very common in the food industry. You know a server somewhere, ask them about it. The day they don't want to work, their least favorite day of the week to work are Sundays. You know why they say? I've heard it over and over again from individuals in the industry. Because Christians come in after being in church all morning and they're rude and they're mean and mean-spirited. They're picky and they're grumpy and they're horrible tippers. We act like jerks. And then don't tip them well. And they go, man, if that's what that Jesus means in their life, I don't need anything. I'm going to work next week and hope I don't get the church crowd that comes in for lunch. You know, it's shameful, absolutely shameful that we have that reputation in that industry. Our integrity takes a beating because when we go to lunch, we forget that we're there on mission for Jesus Christ and that everything that we do, everything that we say, our actions and our attitudes portray something about Jesus Christ. We forget that. We lose sight of our role. Secondly, remember that God blesses obedience and punishes sin. Never forget this truth. God blesses obedience and punishes sin. You remember the Israelite uh, battle with the Amalekites in Exodus 17? They weren't skilled. They weren't trained. They weren't good soldiers. They've been in slavery in Egypt. They knew nothing about warfare and battle tactics, but they obediently went into battle as God told them to, and they won. They won because Moses and his friends held his arms up on the hillside. You know that you remember that battle from last week? They won that battle because of their skills. No, because of God's power working in them. God blessed their obedience and showing up on the battlefield and he gave them the victory. Saul was punished for his disobedience. The Amalekites were punished for their sin and their disobedience against God. Living a life of integrity means that there will come a time when you have to make choices between doing what's right and doing what's wrong. In those moments, remember that God blesses obedience and he punishes sin. It may take a while. The Amalekites weren't ultimately punished for their sin. Saul didn't finish the job. King David had to come along and finally finish the job of annihilating the Amalekites as God had promised and told them it would happen in Exodus 7. He took centuries for it to happen. Saul didn't lose his uh, authority as king right away in 1 Samuel 15. David was anointed king, but it was a number of years before David actually took the position and was seated in the throne as the king of Israel. It took some time for that to happen. It may not be an immediate punishment that we give an account, but God punishes sin. We need to know and understand that truth. God blesses and rewards obedience and he punishes sin even if no one else sees what we do or thinks what we do is wrong. I love this definition. Someone defined integrity as who you are when no one is looking. And God has called us to do the right thing, period. Doesn't matter if anyone else sees it or not. Doesn't matter if you get away with it or not. Look, I got away with it. No, no one saw. No one, there are no repercussions for this. It doesn't matter what the court of public opinion says about it. It matters what God's word tells us to do and whether or not we obey his word, period. 
Look back with me, Deuteronomy chapter 30. I want you to see this passage of scripture. These are words that uh, Moses is giving to the people. Uh, He is about to pass away, no longer be their leader. Uh, They're on the cusp of moving into the promised land and Joshua is going to lead them. And Moses gives them these words, Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's a few books back to your left. Verse 15 This is God speaking through Moses. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Now, let me ask you something. If you're sitting at a table and you've got a plate that has life and good or death and evil, which plate do you want to eat from? I mean, it's an obvious thing. And that's what God says. See, today I set before you life and good, death and evil. Well, how do we experience either of the two? Verse 16, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord with your God, by walking in his way. See, loving God is a heart, it's an affection issue. Walking is living it out. It's what you do, it's your actions, your activities. By walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession. Say, hey, that's behind door number one. That sounds pretty good. Well, what's behind door number two? Well, let's look and see according to verse 17. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to give them. Choose. Choose, Moses says. Choose this day. Later, as they get into the promised land and they're finally about to settle, Joshua speaks to the the people one last time of a famous verse. Joshua says, choose this day who you will serve, but as for me and my house, what? We will serve the Lord. Before they go into the promised land, Moses said, this is the choice before you. When they're in the promised land, Joshua said, this is the choice before you. Do what you want to do, but I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. We are going to serve the Lord. That's the kind of integrity that God demands and expects from his people that we honor him above all else. Finally, and this is extremely important, take responsibility Take responsibility. When you miss the mark, when you fall short, which you will, when it happens, admit it, repent, which means to turn away from it, seek God's forgiveness, and be forgiven through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I love how Jerry Vine summarizes that verse. He says, the sins that you and I cover, God will uncover. They'll be exposed and they'll be punished. But the sins that you and I uncover, God will cover with the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary so that we can be cleansed, forgiven, healed 
and those are washed away. We're going to hold it, not prosper, experience the, the negative impacts of our sin against God. Are we going to uncover them and say, God, here they are. I'm sorry. I confess. I admit. I turn away from these and be forgiven through Jesus' death on the cross. You see, Saul had a reason, an excuse, a justification for everything he did. In his mind, it all worked out. He knew why he was doing what he was doing, but God didn't accept those excuses or his rationalizations, and he punished his disobedience anyway. Now, we don't know what would have happened if he'd accepted responsibility for his sin, but we do know what God promises us. We see Proverbs 28 there. We also know 1 John 1, 9 says this, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Today, I want to invite you to confess your sins so that you can be forgiven of those sins. Perhaps God has convicted you this morning that you've compromised your integrity, you've harmed your witness for him. And maybe part of the courageous life for you, for you to do something bold, courageous before God and before people is to go back and make amends, to make restitution, to seek reconciliation or seek forgiveness for those you have wronged in the past or how you harmed your witness and your integrity before Jesus Christ and before people. Maybe God's leading you today to go and make it right, whatever making it right may look like. But during our time of invitation this morning, I want to invite you to find forgiveness with God first. It starts there and flows into every other relationship through our relationship with him. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ to be forgiven of your sins, to be made right with God and to become a child of God. And our pastors will be available. We'd love to talk with you this morning about giving your life to Christ, being forgiven so that you can become a child of God. Or maybe you just need to come this morning to the altar. You know, we have direct access to God and we want to invite you this morning. If God's laid something on your heart, you need to confess to him and find his forgiveness. The altar is open for you to come and just pour your heart out to God and experience that work that only he can do in your heart and in your life and in your spirit today. So our altar is open for you to transact business for God in that way in your life. But let today be the day that you start living courageously for Christ by being obedient to him in every area of your life and in every situation that you face. Maybe God today said, you know what, there are some areas you're getting close to the line. You've stepped over the line. You've been telling me why it's right, why it's good, why it's not that big a deal. But I'm telling you today, it's wrong. Stop it. Stop it. Get it out of your life. Step away from it. Obey me and trust me to bless you for that obedience. So maybe today you need to make that decision and get right with God in that area of your life. And I want to tell you, you can't do this in your own strength. So, okay, I'm, I'm, do, I'm, gonna, I'm determined. I'm going to be better. I'm going to do this. You're dead in the water because it's not your strength. It's not your power. It's the power of Christ. It's the power of God working through you as you surrender yourself to him and are empowered and equipped through the Holy Spirit to overcome, to be set free, to experience the forgiveness and the cleansing and the healing that only he can do in your life. Would you surrender yourself more fully to Christ in your life to live a life of integrity for the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ?